This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by R.J. Rushduni. Chapter 9, Absolution. We have an account from early Massachusetts colonial history which is revelatory of Puritan life. In 1650, a young man, Samuel Terry of Springfield, caused no small problem to the local church. During the sermon, he remained outside and masturbated. He was detected and his punishment was several lashes on his back. Eleven years later, in 1661, Samuel Terry was in trouble again. Five months after his marriage, his bride gave birth to a mature child, their first. Obviously, Samuel Terry and his bride had been guilty of premarital sexual intercourse. For this he was fined four pounds, no small sum then. In 1673, Terry and eight other men were fined for their part in an immodest and beastly play. Somewhat later, Samuel Terry, a respected member of the community, served as town constable and was entrusted with the custody of an infant by the court. As John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Freeman conclude, quote, In short, as long as he accepted punishment for his transgression, Samuel Terry remained a citizen in good standing. End quote. There was close supervision over all members of society, but there was also forgiveness and restoration. Confession, repentance and restitution, as required, were important in both church and state, and they freed a man from his past. A familiar image from fiction, film and television is of a town prostitute being harshly treated by the churchwomen and pastors in 19th century America. History is so full of multiform examples that it would be rash to say that such things did not happen. However, in very many communities, organisations existed to try to save the prostitutes and many churchwomen found their calling in helping such women. These good women of a community often indicted the double standard and defended any young woman trying to extricate herself from prostitution. Too many ideas of the past, in this respect, owe their existence to Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. But Hawthorne represented and echoed the world of early Unitarianism and its moralism. Moralism has been substituted for theology, and Emersonian transcendentalism carried this further. Humanistic, non-biblical moralism replaced theology. In the latter years of the 20th century, this moralism outdoes anything found in ancient theological controversies. This new moralism concentrates on things like race and environmentalism. Eurocentricism is a new form of racism, according to these people. 
sexism is another new sin. A brilliant student at a major eastern college was threatened with expulsion for referring to God as he. The school was too enlightened to permit such sexism. At this same school, at the last moment, a young historian was denied his doctorate when it was discovered that he was a Christian, a Calvinist. He was excommunicated from the academic community. Moreover, in this humanistic faith, forgiveness is conspicuously absent. What the Puritans did in this area was nothing new, although they were more systematic about it. A condemned murderer was exhorted by the judge to repent before the time of death. Pastors visited him in prison. If he repented, his execution was attended by dignitaries to celebrate his faith and home-going to heaven. In the medieval era, kings and emperors were at times compelled not only to confess their sins, but also to make public penance prior to their restoration to communion with the church and Christians. There was absolution. Absolution means the act of setting free or loosing. It is the prerogative of God alone, but it can be administered by man or the church when done in conformity to God's law. Since it is God's law that the sinner violates, the terms of remission must again be in conformity to God's law. This was recognised by the Jews who held, Who can forgive sins but God alone? from Luke 5.21. For this reason, when Jesus, on his own authority, proclaimed the remission of sins, it was regarded by the Jewish religious leaders as blasphemy and as a claim to be God. The early church held that, because baptism had to be preceded by faith and repentance in adults, it was the first repentance. A problem arose in that many were fearful that after baptism there could be no further remission of sins for fresh sinning. Some thus postponed baptism until near death. Others held to a second repentance and a second forgiveness of sins and absolution. In this area, Tertullian is of interest and in that his drift into Montanism was manifest in various earlier and somewhat anti-Montanist writings, such as On Repentance. In this study, Tertullian wrote on this second repentance in these words, quote, The narrower, then, the sphere of action of this second and only remaining repentance, the more laborious is its probation, in order that it may not be exhibited in conscience alone, but may likewise be carried out in some external act. This act, which is more usually expressed and commonly spoken of under a Greek name, is exomologesis, utter confession, whereby we confess our sins to the Lord, not indeed as if he were ignorant of them, but inasmuch as by confession satisfaction is settled. Of confession, repentance is born, and by repentance, God is appeased. And thus, exomologesis is a discipline for man's prostration and humiliation, also to the very dress and food. It commands the penitent to lie in sackcloth and ashes, to cover his body in mourning, to lay his spirit low in sorrows, to exchange for severe treatment the sins which he has committed, Moreover, to know no food and drink, but such as is plain, not for the stomach's sake, to wit, but the soul's. For the most part, however, to feed prayers on fastings, to groan, to weep, and to roar unto the Lord your God, 
to roll before the feet of the presbyters and kneel to God's dear ones, to enjoin on supplication before God. All this exomologesis does that it may enhance repentance, may honour God by its fear of the incurred danger, may by itself pronouncing against the sinner stand in the stead of God's indignation and by temporal mortification of will, not say frustrate, but discharge eternal punishments. Therefore, while it abases the man, it raises him. While it covers him with squalor, it renders him more clean. While it accuses, it excuses. While it condemns, it absolves. The less quarter you give yourself, the more, believe me, will God give you. End quote. Tertullian, a man of remarkable abilities, had a gift also of being repulsive at times, as this passage indicates. In his Montanist writings, he repudiated on repentance. All the same, on repentance is in line with his Montanism. The Montanists saw themselves as the spiritually minded Christians who stressed the Holy Spirit and were morally superior to Catholic Christians, whom they called the Psychaikai, the carnally minded. They condemned second marriages, they required rigid fasts, advocated celibacy and courted martyrdom. They held to a developing Christianity and they belonged to the age of the Spirit. For them, religion had four stages. First, men had a natural religion and an innate idea of God. Second was the age of the Father and Law, a legal religion. Third was the Gospel religion of Jesus Christ. Fourth came the new revelation of the Paraclete, the Spirit. The Spirit, for Montanism, is like a thunderbolt which strikes man. Instead of working in the natural order, for Montanism, the spirit intervenes as a devastating power. Hence, a spiritual condition is manifested in abnormal actions which are seen as supernatural and supranormal. The consequences of Tertullian's view, which has never entirely left the church, were very great. In the Catholic view, repentance meant a changed life, a reversal of direction. It meant breaking with sin. In his pre-Montanist stage, Tertullian saw repentance as self-debasement, rolling around on the ground before presbyters, fasting, making oneself repulsive in appearance, and so on. Later, Tertullian denied the second repentance, but the same kind of supposedly spiritual manifestation continued in other forms. The medieval church had other light groups, such as the flagellants, who saw rep repentance for sins in abnormal activities rather than a changed life and direction. In the early 1800s, American revivalism sometimes saw those under conviction falling to the floor to go into the jerks and other activities. Such thinking falsified the doctrines of salvation and of sanctification. The emphasis was on the experiential manifestation in man rather than in the simple requirement of our Lord. A good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bad fruit. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. From Matthew 17:15-20. From obedience to God in faith, this emphasis by Tertullian shifted matters to man's, in, 
man's ability to manifest frenetic patterns of behaviour. Now the word frenetic is related to the word frantic and Montanism and its successors have provided a frantic version of the faith. What happens in this perspective if a man sins? The Montanists did not deny that God could forgive adultery and apostasy, but no amount of repentance could lead to restoration this side of the grave. Such thinking led to the concept of purgatory and to a departure from the doctrine of God's sovereign grace and mercy. Montanism has had many heirs, Novatianism, Donatism, some elements in Anabaptism, Puritanism, Pietism, Irvingism and the Camisards according to McClintock and Strong. It is closely allied to perfectionism. Its emphasis on what man does, not on God's sovereign grace. Thus, for all its emphasis on its superiority, Montanism was closer to Greco-Roman paganism than to Christianity. Whenever the focus is on man, forgiveness and absolution suffer. Man can forgive cheaply, simply saying, I forgive you, or he can refuse to forgive at all. What man forgives today, he can resent tomorrow. There is no true absolution. As a result, there is no true deliverance from the past. A Samuel Terry can get ahead in the 20th century only by concealing his past. At the same time, certain sins gain toleration because the people at large refuse to take them seriously. Homosexuals in Congress have not suffered as have other congressional sinners past and present. But toleration is not absolution. People tolerate all kinds of things, but this toleration cleanses nothing. The loss of absolution in the modern world has gone hand in hand with the loss of freedom. It has led to a bondage to the past. Sins unforgiven are sins that remain. And who can forgive sins? Save God only. This is the end of chapter 9. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.